Welcome to Flow with Armand Asadi. All right, today I have an interview and a conversation with Dr. Mark Golston. So this conversation is incredibly profound. We talk about some really incredible real shit. I mean, Mark opens up the conversation talking about suicide and what he's dealt with with his patients. I mean, he was the guy that people got on the phone like this person's about to literally kill themselves uh, to extreme depression. We talked about PTSD and trauma. I asked him about MDMA therapy as an intervention tool um, and his personal thoughts on that. Just a profound conversation. His stories, his illustrations, so easy to listen to. I'm so grateful that Mark came on the show. This is a conversation that truly could save somebody's life. And I highly recommend just listening to it with an open mind and an open heart and uh, just being present with it. And if you don't already know of Dr. Mark, I'll give you a very brief uh, set of, uh, of uh, <laughs> bio points just so you understand who you're dealing with. So Mark uh, was a UCLA professor of psychiatry for 25 years, and he was a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer. The guy really knows his shit. And he's the author of nine books uh, that are international best-selling books. And one of his books, I think he said, was translated into something like 27 languages. He's also got his own podcast called The My Wake Up Call. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation. We'll get right into it with Dr. Mark Golston. Ah, and before we do, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps a lot. And I love seeing those subscribers coming in. The show is growing tremendously and I really appreciate your support. See you soon. What's uh, one thing you're grateful for today? Um, I'm grateful. Uh, well, I'm grateful for my family. Uh, they're in good health. I'm grateful to my wife. Um, a friend of mine, uh, well, I can even mention him. A close friend of mine is a fellow named Ivan Meisner. He founded BNI. And I've known Ivan for a bunch of years. And he recently uh, lost his wife. Mm. And, wow. um, and he's focusing on business. And we have, you know, we're friends. So we have different kinds of conversations. Yeah. But, you know, he had mentioned, you know, being without her is like being without a rudder. And I feel the same thing about my wife. I mean, my wife at times can be really annoying, and I'm sure I'm more than the same towards her. Mm -hmm. But I'm just grateful because I see that she's a, you know, here's one of the problems for a lot of entrepreneurs. A house is not a home, mm -hmm. even if it's a huge house. A home is where people are connecting to each other. Mm-hmm. And often the person who is best at connecting, and there's more to connecting than doing projects together. I mean, projects are fun. Let's do some stuff together. Sure. But connecting, you know, is what makes a home a home. Hmm. And my wife gets most of the credit for that, if not all the credit for that. And so I get to have the best of both worlds. I get to be this kind of entrepreneurial type out in the world. Mm -hmm. But when I, go home, I get to have a home. Now, there's certain things I need to do, which if you're listening in, you'll chuckle at. Uh, when I go home, I need to be as present as possible. What does that mean? That when my grown children, so they all, I'm very fortunate, they live in Los Angeles and I'm a grandpa, oh. but when they're around uh, and I'm in the same room with them, 
I am largely ignored, but I keep space. And I'm there, you know, smiling, saying, I get to have a pretty functional family. Mm-hmm. They can look at their phones and check text messages. So picture this. They're not really talking to me, but if I dare look at my phone, they immediately give me the stink eye. <laughs> so there's this double standard. Yeah. And, and a while back, I was childish. And I said, well, you get to look at your phone. What about me? And I thought, oh, get off it. Get off it. And I realized that what they don't know consciously uh but I think they know unconsciously is that having a dad there, you know, not being all about himself and preoccupied mm-hmm. is a special presence. And, Absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, so often when I'm looking at them, I'm just, I'm just being grateful because I wouldn't have predicted that I would have grown up to have a fairly functional family. Hmm. Um, and also, my grown children, they have each other's backs, mm-hmm. supportive of each other. There's no sibling rivalry. Uh, they, they, they go to bat for each other, and they have many times. And my wife gets nearly all the credit for that. So I'm very grateful for that because I've actually been speaking to a number. I, I was in a clubhouse room called uh, uh, Crushing It in Business and uh, and lousy at home. Mm. And people talked about being divorced. Uh, one person shared, geez, I thought we had a great life and you know, we, you know, you're making money and we're doing things. And then you know, one day my wife gets up and says, you know, uh, this is not what I bargained for. Uh, let's get divorced. And he was just like, what's that all about? And it's interesting when I meet with entrepreneurs, as clued in as they can be with their first baby, which is their business, is as clueless as they can be with their family. Oof. That that one hits home for a lot of people, I'm sure. And um, I think sometimes we don't realize how, how clueless we might actually be. And it takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness and a tremendous amount of courage to actually face that. Because at the end of the day, the relationship is the more important uh thing in your life. I mean, what are you left with at the end? You mentioned this idea of the home is created through connection. What does connection look like? What are examples of that? So here is my definition of being present. And it's interesting because when I coach entrepreneurs, uh, and I only coach entrepreneurs and founders if they, you know, what I've discovered is people don't do what's important to them. They do what they care enough about. It's important for me to eat healthy, real healthy. I don't care enough about it to do it, you know, by the book. I cheat, cheat a lot on that. And so I only work with people who care enough about actually being better in their non-technical skills. You know, if it's just like, oh, I want to get my family off my back, you know, can you give me some quick tactics? No, you know, I got a bunch of books, you know, read them. It'll be much cheaper. And, um, and, and here's something I'm going to hit your listeners and viewers right between the eyes. And I don't care. I like a fellow that. named Jason Reed a couple of years ago reached out to me because I, uh, I was a suicide prevention expert. And for 25 years, none of my patients died by suicide. And a number of them are multiple attempters. And we can get into that or not get into that. 
And so Jason Reed reached out to me, and he had a TEDx talk a few years ago called uh, The Most Important Conversation You Can Have With Your Kids. Hmm. And he talked about how uh, he was celebrating, I think, his wife's birthday, and they were on a great trip in Mexico, and he gets a text message. And the text message reads, uh, don't blame yourself. I'm so sorry. Goodbye. Oh, my God. He started screaming. He called his mother-in-law, who was back at the house, and he said, go find Ryan. She walks around the house. She runs around the house, and there's Ryan up in the attic. He'd hung himself. And he left two messages. I'm going to go down this path uh, because we're going to save some lives, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe wake up some people. Uh, and uh, and he left two notes, Ryan. One was, tell my story. And so if you go to chooselife.org, Jason Reed created a documentary where he went up mm-hmm. and down California, talked to people touched by suicide, suicide prevention centers, uh, families touched by it, people that attempted And I'm in the last five or 10 minutes of the film he interviewed me. And then what happened is he did a video for Goalcast. And if you know about Mm -hmm. Goalcast, they create these videos. And some of them are seen by 150 million people. He did one. It was only seen by 9 million. And he spoke to about a dozen male founders. And it was basically about how he felt it was his fault that his son killed himself. And it's riveting. And it's Mm -hmm. chilling. Hmm. And he basically said, uh, uh, you know, I'm a dad. I don't want to bring my problems to my family. You know, if I'm scared, I don't want to burden them. I'm the guy. Mm -hmm. And what he was really saying is I made it impossible for my son to open up to me when he was scared because I just throw solutions at him. What are you going to do? Here's what you can do. Hmm. And so my son felt isolated from his dad. And so he left these two suicide notes. One was tell my story. And the other one were passcodes to his computer. And when they checked his computer, he'd been looking for ways to kill himself for months. (laughs) And it was interesting because as he talked to these founders, and and if you go to teen mental health webinar, teen mental health webinar, he took the Goldcast video and he put that into team mental health webinar. You might have to look for it. It's kind of like a black image. All included. And on the for screen, it says team well. mental health webinar. Look under videos, you'll find it. So there's his nine minute video. And then for the next 20 minutes is me talking to parents. You got mm-hmm. a kid who won't open up. And, and Jason gave me this great observation. When you ask your kid, uh, how are you doing? And they say, great. They're usually good. But if they say, I'm fine, they're not. Mm-hmm. I'm fine usually means, I don't want to talk about it. Leave me alone. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought, wow, is that a hidden in plain sight red flag? Hmm. And so part of what I talk about is if you have a kid who's moody, uh, uh, yeah, you can give them a timeout and if they come back. Uh, that's okay, but I've been getting emails recently that the suicide rates are going through the roof. Mm-hmm. Teens, uh, spouses, but for teenagers, they're all locked in. They're not really socializing, mm-hmm. and they're not connecting with their parents because they don't know how to, and their parents aren't connecting with them because they don't know how to. And so one of the things I talk about 
is how do you get through to that kid who says, I'm fine? Mm -hmm. Or let's say you're the spouse of an entrepreneur and the, and the entrepreneur's business has failed you know, right. for the umpteenth time and, and they're not picking themselves up. And you say to your entrepreneur spouse, how are you doing? I'm fine. It's the same thing. They're not fine. Hmm. And so, uh, if I may, here's a couple tips because we're going down this rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm gonna, this is a I'm gonna go in. Very and I'm important. Take one. You out. Thank you. So when someone says, "If your teenager or spouse says I'm fine," what you can say to them? You can say, "Oh, I heard on a podcast. You know, some psychiatrist was saying, you know, if you told me you were great, you'd be good. But if you tell me you're fine, you're not. So what's not fine?" Mm. And they'll look at you. And then there's something, I have, I have nine books out. The ninth will come out in March. The eighth just came out. It's called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And I introduce the approach that I use for 25 years that I think prevented people from killing themselves. It's called surgical empathy. Mm -hmm. And surgical empathy, what I learned about people who are really suicidal in a dark place and you're giving them suggestions and treatments, and that's okay until they don't work. Mm -hmm. And when they don't work, what they're beginning to say to you is, I can't come to you, you gotta come to me. And so surgical empathy is a way of listening into people's eyes and, and, and see that they're yelling with their eyes at least the suicidal patients I used to see, I'm running out of time and you're checking boxes. Mm -hmm. So I had a choice, check boxes, cover my rear end, have something to report, and keep a barrier between me and these multiple suicide attempters. And my chart might look good, but it might not stop them from pulling the trigger. So I let go of checking the boxes and I began to listen into their eyes. So one of the things you can mm. say when someone says, I'm fine, is there's something that we've come up with that's in the book uh, about surgical empathy. So uh, one of the things you can ask, say to them is, I know you're fine, uh, but, uh, but 12 words. And they're gonna say, what? Yeah, 12 words, uh, what? what? Uh, do me a favor. Just think of right now the most unfine you've felt in the last week. Mm -hmm. Not even how you're feeling now. Think of the most unfine you felt and pick one of these words. And there are a bunch of words such as uh, anxious, depressed, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, numb, overwhelmed, um, uh, resentful, tired. Mm -hmm. And and the 12 words are in the book, Why Cope When You Can Heal. And why do you do this? There's research, uh, a lot of it done by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA, that says when you can get someone to attach the word that they're feeling to what they're feeling, mm -hmm. it lowers something called amygdala activation. You know, and, the, and there's a cheesy movie that you're too young to remember. <laughs> But there was a series of movies called Rocky. And, I'll, and, I, and you can look up this scene because it's a great example of saying the word and how it just opens you up. 
So in Rocky Three, you can go on YouTube, look up Rocky Three beach scene, mm-hmm. and I'll just I'll just tell you what happened in Rocky Three. Rocky gets beaten by this fighter named Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T, mm-hmm. and it and it scares him and breaks him. And so he's training for the rematch and he doesn't want to do it. And he's on the beach and his, his beloved his, his long beloved wife, uh, uh, Adrian is, is trying to find out what's going on and he doesn't want to talk about it. And they're on the beach. I'm telling you, it's a great scene. Oh, I've seen it many times. Mark, exactly what I said. Everyone should. Yes. You know, and, and, and she's saying, well, what's going on? So she's doing surgical empathy. Well, I don't know. No, but what's really going on? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he starts making excuses and she keeps drilling. And then there's a point at which he looks at her, you know, uh, you want to know? I'm afraid, Adrian. I'm afraid. Okay, Adrian, I'm afraid. And so he lets it out because he attaches the word to what he's feeling. Mm-hmm. She lets it. Uh, she lets it just land. And then she says something like, you know, well, we're all afraid. So she doesn't shove it back down, mm. you know, and that's the turning point in the movie. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the hero's journey. Uh, but I'm saying that because when you're trying to reach someone and you don't, and you don't want to nag them, uh, but you say, pick a word, mm. afraid. Yeah. At its worst, how afraid are you capable of feeling? What? A pretty afraid. Mm-hmm. Pretty afraid or very afraid? Oh, okay, okay, very afraid. And when you're feeling very afraid, how alone do you feel with it? Okay, pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, already all alone. And when you were feeling that unfine moment and you were feeling afraid and you were feeling all alone with it, what did it make you want to do? Why are you asking me this? Tell me. What did it make you want to do? It's okay. It's okay. You can tell me anything because I love you. You can tell me that you didn't want to be here anymore. You can tell me anything because I love you. What did it make you want to do? And so can you see what I'm saying? You're peeling away the onion. You're draining the pus. And then when the person can share it and you don't panic... You don't say, oh, we're going to get you help. Right. Now, let them say, let lead them so that they say, maybe I need to get help. But if you open them up and then you panic, they're going to think to themselves, see, why did I even open up? And you can learn all about this mm-hmm. in uh, Why Cope When You Can Heal. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and I'll tell you one of the reasons we wrote that book. And the subtitle is How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. Mm. It will work with veterans. It will work with firefighters. It will work with police officers without changing anything. We picked healthcare workers because the publishers, I think, correctly predicted that healthcare workers, first responders, are in a war. And what we're told is the war has already killed more people than died in World War II. (laughs) And they're used to tough times. You know, when you're in the emergency room or ICU, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a bad month, a few people will die. But you have a shift in which six died and one of them was your supervisor. Mm-hmm. 
and you couldn't get to the dying person to do the FaceTime with one of their relatives. You also had to refuse treatment to someone because you had you were rationing treatment. And then the icing on the cake is you walk out to the back of the hospital and you know and there's a storage truck because the morgue ran out of room. Welcome to their It's world. a new level of PTSD for sure. Right. Uh, yes. And, and so <clears throat> what we talk about, I didn't mean to go down this thing, but you know, if, if mm -hmm. it's keeping your attention, we'll just keep going with it. So what we talk about and why cope when you can heal is imagine you're in that scene, you're, health, you're that healthcare worker. Mm -hmm. Or imagine you're a, a military person, a Marine in the middle of battle, because I work with veterans also. Mm -hmm. What happens is you're duty bound. You can't bail because you're duty bound. That's your identity. And you're right. not going to bail because your fellow healthcare workers are looking out for you. And so what we talk about is this is where your mind goes. You know, there is that shock of everything I just described. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so picture these steps because these are the steps that we take people through and we're going to take them through after the danger passes. Not now. <laughs> Horror. It's beyond anything they imagine. They get home and they're, they're not distracted by working. Terror. <laughs> They just feel terrorized, but fragile. You know, I, I don't know if I can do this. An overriding sense of panic. I, you know, I'm really getting spooked. And I, you know, I, I haven't slept for 24 hours and I can't get to bed. Right. And then what happens is um, because they're duty bound and that overriding sense of panic flirts with them to shut them down. What happens is the danger triggers triggers adrenaline. Mm. And NBA players can play on a broken leg for a whole quarter on adrenaline. Mm -hmm. It insulates you from pain as an NBA player. And it also helps you push away thoughts and feelings if you're going through trauma as a healthcare mm. worker or, or an milita active military. Mm -hmm. And so all that adrenaline and danger insulates you and so you can function, and you function, and you yeah, make it through the war, and you don't know how you're going to make it through the next shift, and you've been up 48 hours, and on the surface, you feel superhuman, and inside, you feel something's messed up. But you're duty-bound, so you focus. And then what happens, mm. and it will happen, COVID will pass. The war, the wars that active military are in pass for them. They become veterans. And when the danger goes away, the adrenaline goes away and the insulation goes away. Mm. And everything you pushed away and pushed down to survive, the analogy we use, imagine this, every time you're in that horrific, terrifying, feel fragile situation, it's like a nice house cat starts screaming, screaming. And so with that adrenaline, you lock that cat up in the cellar because mm. you got to function. Then you lock up another one, then five more, then 10 more, <laughs> and 100 more. Oh, boy. And then the danger passes. That's how it begins. The adrenaline goes away, and you got 500 cats screaming to get mm. out. And you have They've a never fear. never been that acknowledged. If you have a fear, if you open it up, they're all going to come out and eviscerate you. See, in all the symptoms of PTSD, 
you know, numbing, drinking to numb yourself, mm -hmm. socially isolating yourself, negative intrusive thoughts. Uh, you're all trying, you're trying to stay away from all those cats coming out and eviscerating you. You can't quite do it when you're asleep, so you have nightmares. And then you, and you're brittle. You have something called an increased startle reaction. Mm. You know, you're military or you're healthcare and you love your pickup truck and you're away from people and you're hearing great music and you're relaxed. Car backfires next to you. Poof, you're out of your skull. Mm -hmm. And so what surgical empathy does is it helps you take out one cat at a time. Mm. Through these conversations. I'm curious um, when is it, it okay comes to that we're talking about this. Um, everything is on the table, man. Everything. Yeah. There's no, uh, absolutely. It's okay. It's actually my honor, my pleasure to talk about these things, even though they're not pleasurable topics They're This is it. This is life. This is the most important stuff in the world. And, um, that's why I wanted to have you on. So thank you. My question that comes up for me, you know, I've been, um, Obviously, not, I don't work in this field, but I, I really enjoy it. I spend a lot of time reading, learning. I've seen some really remarkable research um, when it comes to PTSD and certain psychedelics, in particular MDMA. I'm curious, uh, especially as a psychiatrist, what your personal views are on that. Have you do, you do you agree with some of the research that you see? Have you experienced it? Have you worked with patients with it? Do you know, do you, how do you foresee this kind of unfolding? Do you think the traditional sort of uh, approaches and interventions are better? Uh, do you think it's maybe coming too fast? Curious your perspective on all that. Well, I think the, the reason MDMA works and psychedelics work is a lot of people have PTSD are control freaks. Mm -hmm. And when they feel not in control, they feel out of control. And when they feel out of control, they feel the next step is they're going to shatter. Very scary. Military's got this big time. So what MDMA does, and you need a skilled therapist to walk you through it, it's kind of like, imagine it this way. You're a control freak, and your mind is like a Rubik's Cube, and you're afraid that... Uh, and it's really nice because it hasn't gotten messed up. And you're afraid that if you let a little of those cats out, that Rubik's Cube is not only going to get messed up, it's going to it's gonna break apart. Mm -hmm. But the point is, there's so much tension built up. You got to let the Rubik's Cube break apart and have hope that it will come back together. Hmm but you don't believe you're going to come back together again. So what MDMA does is it forces you into a state of, I'm not in control. Uh, this is a terrible nightmare. I am psychotic. Are you sure that I'm going to come back? And so when you have skilled therapists and facilitators who work with it, uh, they know that what's happening is the MDMA is putting you in a position where you accept that you're out of control because mm -hmm. you know you know it's a little bit it's it's not unlike uh, it's a different thing but it's not unlike when you're really drunk really out of your mind drunk yeah you know and you're slurring your words and you say oh I shouldn't talk because I'm slurring my words and then you talk and you're sloppy drunk you can't control it so the MDMA allows you to release that and then with a uh, a skilled or gifted therapist or facilitator they can 
walk you through it Mm -hmm. and reassure you, no, you're not losing your mind. Your mind is reorganizing. (laughs) Are you sure I'm going to get through? No, you're going to get through this. Uh, And then they may give you breathing exercises while you're going through it. Well, you know, I I think I'm dying. No, you're dying. Let's take a few breaths. And so they're used to doing it. So I think it's very helpful. I'll share with you something else that I've developed that when I've done it with people and they've done MDMA, they say, this was as powerful as MDMA Hmm. and it was better. So one of the things I've done with people, and maybe we even try this on an episode, uh, Mm -hmm. is uh, I have people talk about a trauma in their life as far back as possible and as graphically as possible. And I say, what you're going to do is you're going to go back to you immediately during the trauma and after it. Mm. And you're going to have a conversation with that eight-year-old. And we're going to facilitate the conversation. And what that eight-year-old doesn't know is that they not only made it through it, they made it into adulthood. They made it into you. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be the last thing you tell them. Right. Because you 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 don't want them to uh, do all the things they do to cope to survive and then stay wounded inside. And so if you can visualize this, if you go to uh, my, uh, my podcast, My Wake Up Call, and look up an episode with Colonel Chris Kalenda, K-O-L-E-N-D-A. He's the head of the Strategic Leadership Academy. Mm-hmm. And in my podcasts, my podcasts are all about asking people, what matters most to you in life that you think will matter most to you in life at the end of your life? Mm-hmm. So it's not usually just about money or success, because at the end of your life, that may not matter to you, especially if you're not close to anyone in the world. Yeah. And I used to do house calls to dying patients who were worth tons of money, but thought they blew it, <laughs> thought they outsmarted themselves. But if you go to Chris Kalenda, and, and I asked him, he's a colonel, West Point, background, served in the wars, uh, recent wars. I said, what's most important to you? <sighs> and he surprised me. He said, being authentic. And it just surprised me. You know, I'm glad he said that. And then I said, take me to the wake-up calls that led you there. Hmm. And then almost without missing a beat, and I'd never met the guy. He talked about, I think he said, I was 15 and I was sexually molested by a Catholic priest. So we talked a little bit more and I said, can we try something? And I'm doing this after I develop a certain rapport. And he said, sure. And I always give my guests the option because I've done 160 episodes, 120 of the people have said it's the most vulnerable they've ever been in public. And I say, we don't have to post it. Mm -hmm. And the eight people who request to be guests and they're getting to be big name people, I say, look, this is not about selling a product. It's about you showing courageous vulnerability and having my listeners and viewers fall in love with you. And they're going to want to find out everything about you. Right. And if you're here just to sell a product or a process, it's just not a good fit. So what happens is we take him back as an adult to, the, to his 15-year-old self right after he was molested. 
because he didn't talk to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what he did do is inwardly he said, I'm not going to uh, be bullied or out of control ever again. Mm. And that's when he decided to go into the military, go to West Point, wow. become a, a <laughs> colonel and become decorated. Wow. And he said he hadn't even talked about it. I mean, he's talked about it recently, but he hadn't talked about it for 20 years. Wow. And so we go back and we facilitate the conversation between him as an adult and his 15-year-old self. And, and I remember saying, what's the expression on his face? And he couldn't really make it out. I said, is he numb? Is he horrified? I mean, he just got, he just got molested. And so he's able to see those things. And then we can you picture this in your mind's eye? And then we and then we facilitate the conversation, and we pull out the terror. Mm. And then at the end, uh, I'm not sure if we did it in this episode because I've done this now with many people. And by the way, I I've done a TEDx talk. I'm hoping to do a TED talk called "Doing a U Over." Mm. Good title. And uh, and so at the end of when I when I facilitate these things, uh, it's kind of neat. Uh, you know, I'll, uh, often that child, once they're opened up, will say to you as their adult, well, thanks a lot. You're going to leave me now? And I remember in one episode, Ooh. I'm not sure if it was this wow. one, the adult said, well, what do you mean? And the child said, nothing good stays. Thanks for opening me up. You're going to leave me? Hmm. And that's why I facilitate. I said, you're looking into the eyes of this kid who just got molested. And you say, I'm never leaving you. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, what do you mean you're never leaving me? Uh, and I remember one episode, uh, uh, I said, "Does your?" Uh, I said, do you have any birthmarks on you that you've had since childhood? And the person I was talking to said, yeah, I got this mole on my arm. I said, good, good. Tell that young kid, show me your arm. He shows the arm with a birthmark. And then I said, show him your arm. And then he shows his younger self the arm. And he says, I'm not leaving you because I'm you. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I'm never leaving you. And we made it through it. And you're going to have a great life. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. <laughs> You'll make it through them. Mm-hmm. And then when I do the visualization, I have them hug each other, imagine their DNA fusing. Mm. And then when I'm talking to the adult, I say, now you become the 15-year-old. Mm -hmm. So can you picture this in your mind's eye? Very so, powerful. And what happens is they can just feel it. Right. And they feel the DNA fusing. And then when they when that person's hugging that traumatized child. And then I say, you become the traumatized child. You know, they, they start to cry because what they're picturing is holding on to hope. <laughs> and then we seal it inside. Mm -hmm. You know, and we can do this multiple times. I, I'm about to do a, uh, I'm, I'm part of a group of entrepreneurs uh, called Metal, Metal International. Uh, it's a great group. I'll tell you more about it because you need to join it. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm going to do an immersion project with about 
30 of them, all men. Mm. And we're going to do that. We're going to take them back. I, I, a couple thoughts I would love to share. I, um, I don't say this lightly. I really believe that what you just described in practically everything that you've talked about is some of the most important and powerful work in the world. Um, and that we all, in a sense, have a responsibility to, to do this type of work. And the reason I believe that is that one of my favorite quotes of all time, controversial figure, but one that I absolutely adore, Carl Jung once said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Mm. So many of us carry a tremendous number of wounds, screaming cats, and trauma. And trauma comes in varying degrees. Trauma can exist for a rich little girl who grew up in paradise as well. I mean, trauma, uh, you are not immune to trauma uh, in any shape or form. There are degrees of it. There is the the war veterans you've described, and then there's the rich girl in paradise. And in their reality bubble and tunnel, there is a relevant version of suffering. And that can tremendously impact a human being in terms of how they see the world and how they interact with others. And since I think that most of us can agree, relationships are the most important thing in, li- in life, if not one of the most important things, um, what we bring to these relationships is often a result of these experiences. And if we have not faced these demons and the trauma and done the work that you're describing, whether it be through surgical empathy, I believe you called it, or uh, through MDMA therapy, or through sitting down with a psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist, or trying to attempt to do the work on your own, uh, which some people do have success with, but not many. In one way or another, you got to do this work. Because if you don't, you become this nihilistic victim of life. And you sit back and you go, why the fuck? Why is the world doing this to me? Why am I suffering so much? Oh, this terrible world, this terrible economy, these terrible people. Why are all these people always conning me, scamming me, hurting me? And we just project. And the harder work is to take responsibility, to sit down and to do the things that you're describing and to own our suffering And to know that in many ways, as the Buddha said, life is suffering and that the remedy for that is actually to realize that that suffering is in the mind and is is in our control. Uh, That's the irony, right, of the phrase life is suffering. And so I don't know each person listening what modality resonates for you the most, but it's like, get on it, pick one, go for it, experiment, you know read your books, uh, because these are the things that can completely change a person's life. Yes. I want to share something with you. Uh, uh, You know, after this, I have an article at at markgoulston.com. I have tons of blogs there. But if you do a search for how you became you doing a you-over, how you became you doing a you-over, you will see an article. uh, It will blow your mind. 
And I'll tell you a little bit what it's about. Yeah, please. Because it's exactly what you talked about. Mm. There are two graphics in it that blow people's minds. And basically, the first one is how personality develops. And the idea is that when we're stepping into the unknown from infancy, we're always looking back. That's called reprochement. It's a psychological French term. We're always looking back. If we hurt ourselves, we look back at our parents and am I going to be okay? Uh, or if we do something great, was that, a good, was, was that a good hit? And we look back and we internalize what we receive when we look back. Mm. So that's the first graphic. The second graphic shows that there's four responses or a combination that we can receive when we look back, when we're upset. We can be coddled, bailed out. Uh, uh, distracted with all kinds of things because the parent can't tolerate it. And what happens is that really spoils you from life because life isn't going to bail you out. And when you grow up, you often develop compulsions because a compulsion like eating and drinking bails you out of a mood just mm -hmm. like your parents did. Uh, another response is they can be critical. You're feeling hurt and fear and they shame you. Uh, it's your own fault. Didn't we tell you, you know, uh, uh, what to do and you did it wrong? Well, you know, you're just, you're just stewing it until you learn your lesson. And that often leads to an angry teenager. Leave me the F alone. And if that is unmodified uh, at the end of your life, you're a blamer and you're bitter. The third response is just neglect. Your parents are preoccupied. They're depressed. Uh, they can't respond. And so you feel really alone. So the result of that is you go through life, you don't take chances because if you fall on your face, you know, and you're all alone, you don't want to refill that again. Mm -hmm. And the final column, there's four rows, is what we call a loving teacher, mentor, coach. A loving teacher, mentor, coach. And, and, uh, uh, and that's someone who uh, lets you talk it out. What happened? Uh, what'd you think? What'd you think when it happened? What'd you feel when it happened? Mm -hmm. Wow, geez. What did you do? What did you want to do? And they get you to talk out the impulse instead of acting on it. Wow. Uh, if it happens again, what do you think would be a better thing to do? Mm. And they coach you with that. And then what happens is the better thing to do is learning that you can talk things out or journal and take something away from an upset which is going to hijack your amygdala and make you do something impulsive, or you can keep thinking about it. And here's one of my favorite stories to indicate the power of a loving teacher, mentor, coach. It's 1997. It's the Masters Tournament. It's Tiger Woods' first Masters Tournament as a professional. He shoots 40 on the par. Not good. He goes to Earl Woods. And he essentially says, I don't know what's going on. I mean, the wheels are coming off. I don't know what to do. And Earl Woods, who has been this teacher, mentor, coach, says, Tiger, you've been there a thousand times before. Do what you need to do. And he goes out and shoots 18 under par. And if you add that to the three over, it was never equaled until this year, since 1997. Because when he was traumatized by his 40, he reached inside 
And he came up with an internalized teacher, mentor, coach. Hmm. Does it make sense? And, and, and the visualization that we talked about is going back and being that loving teacher, mentor, coach to that traumatized you, you know, as opposed to coddling it, as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, shaming it, as opposed to just ignoring it. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Is it okay if we go back to something you said, which was a rabbit hole, but I just want to kind of peek my head <laughs> back in that hole. It was the first um, sort of discussion around dealing with people who are, how to support someone who is having thoughts about suicide, depression. Um, I want to make sure I understand that because it was very powerful. It, it ultimately seemed to come down to um giving this person space, if, if the outcome is to provide a means for this person to face their trauma by performing surgical empathy and asking the right questions so that they feel safe to tell you how they are unfine, then it is a given, it seems, that we cannot give somebody who is in states of extreme depression too much space because one of the attributes of depression is wanting to be alone and not wanting to socialize, obviously. And so is it correct that we need to, especially in particular, I assume it depends on the relationship, depends who you are in that person's life, but there is a need uh, to show up for that person and ask the right questions. And, you know, when it comes to I don't know, for some reason, the thought of like conflict styles was coming up for me. You, you can't be avoidant with this person, it seems like. You really have got to uh, step up and face whatever they're going through, or at least help them face whatever they're going through by asking the right questions. Is that correct? Because I think that often, you know, when you see somebody who's in, in a very deep, depressed state, it's very unclear how to deal with them. And, and, and I think often one thing maybe that isn't talked about is that we have this feeling that we don't want to drown ourselves. And when somebody is drowning, you know, it's like, if they're pulling you, you're going to, you're going to kind of go down with them if you don't know what you're doing. So whose role is that? And how do you approach it? Well, if you're thinking, I'm glad you brought this up because it happens commonly. And and someone says, leave me alone. And, And what happens is we either don't want to drown in it, and if it's not that, we feel totally unskilled right. to enter into that. There's a saying, where there's a will, there's a way. It's actually backwards. Where there's a way that is doable by regular people, you don't have to be an expert, you don't have to be a psychologist, but where there is a way that is doable by you, you will find the will to do it. So yes, I believe in creating a space But what you want to do is create a a framework in which they can can choose to come towards you. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit like when you're dealing with skin grafts. You you put a grid on which the tissue can granulate over that framework as opposed to going into different directions. And so here's an example of that, another example of surgical empathy. Uh, So they say, I'm fine. You could say, then you can use the emotions. Uh, that's that's one uh, one technique. Here's another technique. Uh, you can say they can say, I know you're fine, but uh, 
but humor, just humor me. I got a couple of questions. Oh, yeah, I know. I told you I was fine. Yeah, I know, but just humor me. And then you start to learn to use an FM NPR voice. AM voice is transactional. NPR FM is talk to me. Mm-hmm. So it's an inviting voice. And, and so you switch over into that and you say, uh, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling? What? Yeah, at its absolute worst, how awful, like I can't take it anymore, are you capable of feeling? Pretty awful. Pretty awful or very awful? Oh, oh, okay, very awful. They're getting irritated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're feeling it, how alone are you capable of feeling it when you're feeling it? What? How alone, when you're feeling that way, do you feel with it? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Oh, okay, okay, all alone. Mm-hmm. And then the third question is, uh, take me to the last time. Right. What? Yeah. Maybe 2.30 in the morning because, you know, we sometimes hear that you're up at 2.30 in the morning and you're, you know, walking around and we don't know what's going on. And here's an interesting thing. Is when they can describe in graphic detail and you give them the space to describe it without you cutting them off. And don't do this if you're going to jump in out of your own right. anxiety. Because, I mean, that's the key, because, right? because they're going to say, you know, I shouldn't have opened up. Right. And so, but here's an interesting thing. When you get them to, to describe something, okay, it was 2.30. Yeah, I was walking around. Yeah, And what were you doing when you were walking around? I was trying to get back to sleep, and then I got out of bed, and I couldn't get back to sleep. And, and, and so... What did you think about? What did you feel like doing? You really want? Yes, I really want to know. I need to know. Well, I, I I thought about putting my fist through the wall, but then I thought, why not my head? Okay. And and what did you do? Well, I didn't put my head through the wall, but I started looking around. You know, because I I you know, if you must know, I have you know, I I collect some of your outdated medicines. When you're not looking, I take some of them collect them. Uh, and I started looking around for an outdated sleeping pill. Couldn't find it. Then what happened? I, I was pacing. I tr- and I tried not to clump around because I knew it would make you into nervous wreck. So looks like you heard me. Then what happened? I thought I was going to go out of my mind and then the sun rose. And it was something, the sun rose. It's like I made it through. See, but what and what happens is when they're describing it that graphically to you that you can see it, they refeel it. Mm-hmm. But when they refeel it, they're not alone. Mm. So is that really the outcome to drive at? It's 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 the they're associating to the pain again, back where they were when they were at their most painful, at their most alone. But we're doing it through a new lens with you, with whoever, so that they are able to reframe the association of that event in one where, hey, I have some support here and I'm being heard in their space well, and I'm not alone. Not, it's not just the reframe. What's happening is they're, you're giving them 
a burst of a hormone that's become a unicorn. Mm -hmm. And I fall technology and social media has done this. You're giving them a surge of oxytocin bonding. <clears throat> what's happened? And, and I fault the, you know, we're all part of this. What's happened is years and years ago, oxytocin, closeness, intimacy, tenderness, patience, being loving, yeah, used to trigger dopamine. That used to be pleasurable. But with the advent of how many likes, how many people, whatever, what's happened is it got displaced by the excitement of adrenaline. Mm. And adrenaline takes care of your ADD. So what happened Beautiful. is AD, people seek ADD to trigger dopamine. And oxytocin's just too slow. Hmm. Get to the point. It's just too slow to figure out what you're feeling and care about. <laughs> and we're all victims to that. Yeah. So by doing this, though, you're giving them, uh, it's atrophied, but it hasn't gone away completely. And so you're giving them a taste of oxytocin, mm. which enables them to reframe because oxytocin counters high cortisol. High cortisol settles down an overactive amygdala. Your amygdala, instead of hijacking you into doing something where you're shooting from the hip, calms down, goes back into the holster. Mm -hmm. When your amygdala calms down, your blood flow goes up into your upper brain so you can, wow, I can actually mm -hmm. think. And so that process gives them a a surge of oxytocin and closeness. They feel felt by you. The book behind me, Just Listen, is in 27 languages, maybe 28. We just got another one. And it's a topic on listening in the world because it's all about how do you cause someone to feel felt? Mm -hmm. and, and feeling felt is way, way more difficult than merely feeling understood. Feeling understood won't save your life. Mm. won't save a suicidal person's life. It, it might, but feeling felt. Here's an insight about suicide. So thank you for giving, I told you, you give me a leash, we're going to go all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we're dropping nuggets along the way. And Oh, and you not, better not, believe it. This is other, what I wanted. Other people might say, those aren't nuggets, those are those are dog turds. So, you know, it's, you know to each of their own. Uh, so I wrote a article after Anthony Bourdain died by suicide. Mm -hmm. It got 500,000 views in eight days. It's up at medium. It's called why people kill themselves. It's not depression. And what I said is, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people that are depressed. They don't kill themselves. Hundreds of millions of people lose their jobs. They don't kill themselves. They lose a marriage. Yeah, it can contribute. Mm -hmm. But there's so many that don't do it. But having been this interventionist, and by the way, if you're listening in, I am retired. I'm not licensed, but I will teach groups of counselors. I will teach uh, parents how to reach people, uh, reach their kids, but I, I don't do it one-on-one -on -one anymore. You know, uh, I feel badly about it, but, you know, after 45 years, it's, I decided to try to scale life-saving as best yeah. I could. And you're helping me with this thing, you know, so, uh, what I said is let people who are suicidal, nearly all of them feel at the end is they feel despair, D-E-S-P-A-I-R. They feel unpaired with reasons to live, hope less, help less, power less, use less, worth less, purpose less, meaningless. And when they all line up, 
pointless. And what happens is death empathizes with that. Death is like the siren's call to suicidal sailors saying, come here and I'll take the pain away. Wow. So they attach to death to take the pain away because death feels their pain. But it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But if they can feel felt by you, they'll attach to you. I'll share a story that gives most people the chills. Changed everything for me as a practitioner. So uh, I had a mentor who was probably the in the top three pioneers in suicide prevention. He was at UCLA, and he would see suicidal people that needed to be discharged, but they weren't acutely suicidal. So you can't keep them there forever. So he would refer me these people. And there was one woman named Nancy. She'd made three or four attempts. She'd been in the hospital three or four months every year for three or four years. And I didn't think I was making any progress with her. But I was seeing her two, three times a week. And she really spoke. She wasn't catatonic. But if you're me, this is her. Mm. And, and one day on a Monday, I came in. And I'd been up 30 hours because I was moonlighting at a state hospital to, you know, to... Uh, cover for the psychiatrist there. You know, it's a way to pick up extra money. I did admissions, medication, yada, yada, yada. So it's Monday and I come in and there's Nancy. And as I'm seated with her, you know, having, having not slept for 30 hours, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out and the room is black and white. And then I get these cold chills and I thought, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. So I'm an MD and it wasn't rude because she wasn't looking at me. And I gave myself a neurologic exam. I'm going like this. <laughs> and I say to myself, I don't think I'm having a stroke or a seizure. I'm all there. I'm all here. And then I had this crazy idea, the her eyes and feeling what she felt. And because I was sleep deprived, I blurted out something that normally I wouldn't. And you'll understand why normally I wouldn't. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of all the pain. And I thought to myself, did I think that or did I say that? And I, then I thought, I think I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she looked at me. And she really looked at me. And I thought she was going to say, thank you, I'm long overdue. I got real nervous. I said, what are you thinking? And she looked at me, holding on to my eyes like I'm holding on to yours. And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain... Maybe I won't need to. <laughs> and she smiled. And then I held her eyes and I said, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatment or programs because you've been through it all unless you tell me I think I need one of those. I'm not going to push anything on you unless you say, you know, can we brainstorm about something? Would that be okay? And she looked at me with a look that said, Keep talking. I'm curious. 
And then I looked back into her eyes. And by the way, all the color had come back and all the cold and chills had gone away. And I said, what I am going to do is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And when I find you, I'm going to keep you company there for as long as it takes. Because I don't want you to be in hell alone. Hmm. Would that be okay? And she started to tear up. And so that's a little taste of surgical empathy, how you go in, keep people company in the dark night of the soul. <laughs> when they feel felt and they feel less alone, they start to cry with relief. Little bits of hope sneak in and, mm -hmm. and you build on that. Wow. Remarkable, remarkable story. Um, I, I am so grateful uh, for your time, but also I'm grateful to myself for following my instinct to reach out to you to, to do this because I felt it the very first time we interacted on Clubhouse. There's plenty of interesting people on there. Some of them are uh, snake oil salesmen. Some of them are um, have millions and millions of followers. There's everything in between. And then I heard your voice and your presence, and uh, it was just remarkable. The, the pace at which you speak, the presence and love, actually, in your voice. Um, that's the interesting thing about Clubhouse, right? All I have is your voice, and this is the first time seeing you, and it's like, oh, yeah, I see it in his eyes <laughs> as well. It's, uh, it's, it's beyond authentic, and um, you already have you know, as you've said, decades of work and nine books that you've done to, to back all this up. I'm curious what this next phase of life looks like for you. What are you really focused on right now? What are you most excited about right now? And, and any closing thoughts that you want to make sure the listener goes home with, because this was a lot of amazing stuff today. Um, can I share another story with you? Please. Stories are the best way to learn. So I, I speak all around the world. Um, the most intimidating talk I was ever asked to give was at something called Mondays at the Mission. And at the Union Rescue Mission, there is an entrepreneur, a great guy named Christopher Kai. And he'd been doing this for a number of years. And he brings in people to speak to 11 to 17-year-olds who are homeless with their moms. The Union Rescue Mission is huge. It's in the middle of Skid Row. And he'd had Elon Musk had come in, I think, you know, a year earlier. Um, and, and he said, Omar, come on, you'll be great. And so, you know, I, you know, I want to be helpful. I had no idea what I was going to talk about. And so there's about there's a little classroom. It's probably seven at night on a Monday. And there's about 20 kids, age 11 to 17. And as I walk through the Union Rescue Mission, I'm passing the rooms that they're staying in with their mothers. You know, they don't let the dads stay there. And many of the dads aren't even around anyway. And so I see, you know, as I'm walking down the corridors, you know, the moms are letting them go, go to the, this classroom. So I'm sitting behind them. I see their backs. And Christopher Kai is a motivational speaker. And he's, you know, and he's pumping them up. But uh, 
I see he's pumping them up, and I don't see what their fronts are looking like. I, I feel their backs. Mm. And I see they're, they're trying to hear his words, but what's dawning on me is uh, I'm glad he's saying these things, but it's like putting lipstick on a pain when you are a motivational speaker and the pain is too much. <laughs> so I start getting intimidated. I didn't, and I'm saying, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. <clears throat> now I'm pretty fast on my feet. And so what happens is I go to the front of the room and I just heard a sermon uh, by a pastor friend of mine, and he talked about a woman named Anna Does America, or Runs America, and there was a woman named Anna who ran across America for veteran charities. And uh, Jimmy Bartz, Pastor Jimmy Bartz, had asked her, what, what, what made you not quit? And, he said, and, they, and Anna said, I kept looking at things as if I was a blind person seeing things for the first time. Oh, that's a palm tree. Oh, that's a mom and pop restaurant. Oh, that was a big dog uh, who was dropped something on the sidewalk. And so I said, and I told him that story. And I said, now what I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. And then when you open them, I want you to mention something that you noticed for the first time. You've been coming to this room for a few weeks or during the day. So they did the exercise and everybody, including the volunteers, said, oh, there's a stain on the wall. Oh, the clock doesn't work. Oh, that, those, that pile of puzzles has been in the same place for a week. Mm-hmm. And I said, good. So you just became noticers. And I said, now I want, to, I, I want you to do an exercise and pair up with the person next to you. And you're going to look into each other's eyes. And I'm going to teach you how to do that. So I go around the room and I look into each per, each kid's eyes and I said, and you're going to look into the other person's eyes the way I'm looking into your eyes, you know, and I can hold on to people's eyes. You know, I mean, I'm doing that right now. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to take turns and you're going to ask each other the same question. What's the worst part of your life? And I could see the volunteers tense up. And I waved to them, it's going to be okay. I didn't know if it was going to be okay. It just felt right. So they take turns asking that. Within a minute, half the room is crying. And they're saying the same answer, being here, being here, being here. And I, t- and I said to the volunteers, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And it was okay. And afterwards, I said, how did that feel? And the kid said, better. Well, because you didn't feel less alone. You felt less, I mean, you felt less alone. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't leave well enough alone. So I said to them, that felt better. And you asked that question. And here's your assignment. I just saw your moms as I came in here. When you get out of here, you could do it tonight, maybe tomorrow, but in the next 24 hours, I want you to look at your mom, look her in the eye, and say, Mom, what's the worst thing about our life? And a lot of them are going to have the same answer. Being here, and they're going to start to cry, like you did. And what I want you to do when they start to cry, 
and you're looking at your mom, you put your arm around their neck and you look at and you say, look at me, mom. And they're going to be crying. And you're going to say this to them. We're going to be okay. And I love you. Hmm. And I will tell you, for a third of your moms, maybe more, it'll be in the top three conversations they ever have in their lifetime. So that's what you're going to do. Hmm. So thanks for letting me squeeze that story in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I can only imagine how powerful that is for those moms that probably never in their lives have been that vulnerable, um, let alone with their child. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, um, we're going to include show notes and links to everything you mentioned. Um, is there anything else you want to include or ways for people to connect with you and find you and any closing thought? Well, some of the things I'm doing, if you go to markgoulston.com, you know, I, I, I blog a lot and do look for the one that's uh, how you became you doing a you over. You can just do the search and you'll see mm-hmm. those graphs I talked about. Uh, I do have a podcast called My Wake Up Call and I've interviewed Larry King, who I became friends with and I'm, I just lost. I, I had breakfast with him seven days a week for two years with a little group. Wow. And, and it's interesting. I'll share this with you. I'm thinking of doing on Clubhouse a room called Channeling Larry King, hmm. because I also learned the way he interviewed people. He listened. He, in, he listened. <laughs> he was curious about everything. And he was mm-hmm. curious, and he asked the questions that the everyday person was curious about. Yes. And he would ask questions without judgment. So, so how long have you had green hair? Why'd you do that? Right. Oh, wow, wow. Looks, yeah. Have you ever had any other colors? You know, wow, wow. That's pretty interesting. And so he never cornered people. He never did a gotcha on them. He had opinions, but he never expressed opinions or gave advice. I mean, I'm giving advice because you're asking me to. But I, I don't know. He's my last mentor. My, all my mentors have died. Hmm. And I internalize my mentors. They go into my DNA. My first one was the suicide expert. And he taught me about empathy. I had another one, a person named Warren Dennis, who was a mentor to Howard Schultz and David Gergen. And they said Warren was a deep listener. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, just listen, kind of because I was inspired by Warren to be a deep listener. And it hasn't fully internalized with Larry King, but I'm really leaning towards just being deeply, deeply curious so I'll, I'll see how that comes out, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking of doing that. There's a good chance there won't be anyone in the room except you. <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, definitely, uh, if you're not already on Clubhouse, to anybody listening, join, follow Mark, follow myself, and let's do some more rooms together. I think that would be an absolute delight. It would be awesome. We can pick some cool topics. I think we're interested in very similar things. I think there's a lot of people talking about things that I'm not really interested in, and I'm looking to have deeply authentic conversations and I've got nothing to sell. I just want to cultivate and create these rooms of absolute, uh, authentic, pure, deep, meaningful experiences and potentially provide somebody the opportunity to share something that 
they maybe have never been able to share before in any other in any other medium or setting. And to me, that is worth everything. So let's definitely do that. So here's what we're going to call the room. Channeling Larry King, be curious and multiply. <laughs> Your copywriting is pretty good. I have a background in copywriting. That's pretty good. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate your time. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for having me on. And uh, uh, I told you we might take a little time. And uh, yeah, you were a little skeptical, but uh, you know, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, we we did well together. We did well. We did great. Thank you, Mark. There it is, my conversation with Dr. Mark. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you. I hope you gained some valuable nuggets from this episode. Very curious what they might be. My phone number is in the description of this episode, wherever you are listening. Tap that phone number, shoot me a text message, let me know your thoughts. And if you send me a message with hashtag flowkit, F-L-O-W-Kit, I'll send you a little special gift. And all show notes and everything I mentioned will be at armonasadi.com on the podcast page for this episode. There was a lot mentioned and a lot of various links that will be up there. So make sure to enjoy. Send this episode to a friend. Let me know how you're doing. And until next time, I'll see you. Peace.